This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. Our community is lacking some information, especially in regards to understanding the nuances that come with being queer, being LGBT. That was Eric Ndawa, Executive Director of the Lifeline Youth Empowerment Center, describing a bill being introduced in Uganda against LGBTQ people as absurd and annoying. Details coming up also. Disease outbreaks are surging in the Greater Horn of Africa. A militia linked to the Islamic State group kills at least 36 people in eastern DRC. And Tropical Storm Freddy is set to hit the coast of Southern Africa again today or early tomorrow. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. The World Health Organization reports disease outbreaks are surging in the Greater Horn of Africa. Tens of millions of people are food insecure and the number of malnourished children is the highest in years. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. Most countries in the region, Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, Djibouti and Uganda, are battling the worst drought in 40 years, while Sudan and South Sudan are dealing with mammoth flooding. The World Health Organization reports these climate-related disasters, as well as conflict, have caused hunger to soar in the region. WHO Incident Manager for the Health Crisis in the Greater Horn of Africa, Lisbeth Elbrecht, says 48 million people are facing crisis levels of food insecurity. Speaking from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, she says food shortages are forcing people to skip meals after depleting their savings and selling their livestock and other essential livelihood assets to survive. These 48 million people do include as many as 129,000 who are facing catastrophe. And catastrophe, that means they are facing starvation and literally uh, looking death in the, in the eyes. Almost 12 million children under the age of five are projected to be malnourished in this region. Conflict, extreme weather events, and the food crisis have displaced 18 million people in the region. WHO says large numbers of people on the move often suffer from a lack of hygiene and sanitation, as well as safe water, conditions that increase the risk of disease outbreaks. Albrecht says the number of reported outbreaks in the Greater Horn of Africa has reached the highest level this century. She says all seven countries are facing measles outbreaks, while four are struggling with cholera. She says malaria, dengue, hepatitis E, and meningitis also are on the rise. She says food insecurity is also a health crisis, which can be particularly dangerous for children if not properly treated. Malnutrition in combination with disease are often a deadly cocktail. You know, for example, a malnourished child that gets measles is much more likely uh, to die. And that's also why WHO um, is widely uh, supporting um, the treatment of severe Uh, acute malnutrition in combination with um, medical complications. WHO warns there's no end to the crisis in sight as another below-average rainy season is projected for the coming months. 
The UN Health Agency is appealing for $178 million to carry out urgent, life-saving work throughout this year. It says money is needed to shore up collapsing health systems with medical supplies and trained personnel. It says more resources are needed to avert widespread illness and death across this fragile region. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Mali's military government says it will postpone a constitutional referendum while sticking to a previously agreed timeline to return to civilian rule. The vote was scheduled for Sunday, March 19th. According to the French news agency AFP, the military will miss the first deadline of its own timetable to return to civilian rule by February 2024. Some observers expected an election delay as no arrangements had been made and the draft constitution was handed over to the government on February 27th. The government says it needs time to set up subdivisions of the election management body and time for the public to study the draft constitution. The new document would allow the president to appoint the prime minister and cabinet and to dissolve the National Assembly. Ugandan lawmakers have introduced a bill that would allow the jailing of LGBTQ individuals for up to 10 years for declaring their identity or touching with homosexual intention. Uganda has been cracking down on LGBTQ groups amid claims the groups are promoting homosexuality in schools. Uganda's gay community and rights groups say they are being persecuted. Halima Tumani reports from Kampala, Uganda. Parliament began a new session Thursday and lawmakers introduced the anti-homosexuality bill. The text of the bill says it seeks to protect the cherished culture of the people of Uganda and its traditional family values against the acts of sexual rights activists seeking to impose their values of sexual promiscuity on the people of Uganda. Anita Mong, Uganda's parliament speaker, stated reasons why the country needs the law. For us, it's about our morals and our culture. And I want to urge members of parliament, please don't get intimidated. Never get intimidated. We are doing all this for humanity. Legislator Asman Vasalira then read out the goals of the bill. Criminalization of homosexuality with the liability of imprisonment of 2 to 10 years for committing homosexuality, aggravated homosexuality, attempted homosexuality, aiding and abetting homosexuality, conspiracy to commit homosexuality, and related practices. In 2019, Eric Ndawa, the executive director of the Lifeline Youth Empowerment Center, a gay, bisexual, and queer men's organization, was outed after a police raid at a shelter. Speaking to VOA, Ndawa says his family described him as abnormal and a disgrace to society, forcing him to live a double life. Since then, he says he has lived as a gay man in Uganda through resilience and being rebellious. Ndawa describes the bill as absurd and annoying, but not surprising. Our community is lacking some information especially in regards to understanding the nuances that come with being queer, being LGBT. People don't become gay at 18. 
because at the end of the day, when you look at the bill, it's just regulating how we are having sex. At the moment that you come out and speak that you're gay, you're reduced to a sexual being. In a statement after the bill was introduced, rights group Human Rights Watch said that if adopted, the law would violate fundamental rights, including the rights to freedom of expression and association, privacy, equality, and non-discrimination. Human Rights Watch researcher Oriem Nyeko tells VOA that even though the law does not include a death penalty sentence, as was the case in a similar anti-gay act passed in 2013, but later annulled, no one should be sent to prison because they are having consensual sex with an adult. Nyeko says the criminalization of same-sex conduct in Uganda will continue to have far-reaching impact. What we found when the first iteration of the law was passed, you know, people were uh, arbitrarily arrested just because people thought they might be homosexual. They were beaten. They were evicted from their homes. They lost jobs. And organizations said they wouldn't provide them with uh, services that they need for health care. And these are all important considerations because even if they're a minority, they still matter. The 2013 Anti-Homosexuality Act was annulled in court for, among other reasons, Parliament passing it without a quorum. During the first reading of the 2023 bill, Speaker Mong made it clear what will happen when the time comes to take a vote. All the members will vote by time. We will call the person and the person will vote. We don't want the technicalities of saying there was no quorum. This is the time you are going to show us whether you are homo or you are not. The bill has now been sent to the Legal and Parliamentary Affairs Committee, which will hold public hearings. Halima Athmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. The Democratic Republic of Congo's military says a militia linked to the Islamic State group killed at least 36 people in an attack in the volatile eastern part of the country. According to survivors, the Allied Democratic Forces, ADF, attacked the village of Mokondi in North Kivu province, 25 kilometers southwest of provincial capital Beni, starting late Wednesday. More than 120 armed groups have been fighting for decades in eastern DRC for power, influence, resources, and self-defense. A regional ceasefire deal was due to take effect Tuesday, but M23 rebels clashed with soldiers on two fronts the same day. Over the past year, more than 800,000 people have been displaced by renewed fighting between Congolese forces and the M23, according to authorities and humanitarian organizations. For more on the situation, Douglas Mpuga reached Fred Bauma, a senior fellow at the NYC NYU Center on International Cooperation. He is also a human rights activist and executive secretary of Ibutili, a research institute based in Kinshasa. I am not surprised by the fact that this is this is had been called and I think it was predictable to some extent. There is a lot of international pressure, at least uh, from from there were the visit of French president last uh, last week, uh, the Angolan delegation in Kinshasa. We had some representative in uh, in Angola as well. But I don't think 
what what the M23 are requesting, they are they have obtained anything. They want to be able to discuss directly with the government, which I think uh, the government is resisting so far, and I think there is a uh, massive um, popular opinion, re popular rejection of, of that kind of solution in, in DRC. So it will be probably uh, difficult for the government to explain uh, negotiation with M23. And unless that's happened, I don't see M23 um, feeling any attack on, on, on villages. And also, the international pressure that we've seen so far is not followed by action, like concrete action, uh, like sanctions against against M23 or against against Rwanda for supporting M23. And so, unless if we, we if we continue in uh, that statement, I don't see how they can be anything. It is fine. Uh, there have been several efforts by, uh, for instance, uh, there, have, there have been the Angolan president, as you mentioned, the AU, East African community forces. What should happen to make this uh, problem go away? Because it seems nothing seems to be working. I, I think there's so many things that can be can happen to reduce this violence by M23 right now. One is to name and uh, take actions against Rwanda by many countries in the international community, would be France or the US or, or, or the European Union. Another is to, to create a real demobilization, demobilization program. Today, we, we don't see any demobilization. We are seeing even the remobilization of armed groups in, uh, in, in Eastern Congo. And I don't think uh, that can lead to a long-lasting peace. But if you, if you stay on, on M23 alone, I think pressure on Rwanda is one of, is, is part of the solution and uh, pushing the Congolese government probably to equip uh, and reform its uh, own army may be a, a long-lasting solu long solution, one of the long-lasting solutions in, the, in, uh, in this conflict. After that, there is, uh, there is normal grievance for, by, by, by different parties. There's a question of refugees, there's a question of uh, discrimination and or, or a question of justice that is raised uh, mainly by, by the civil society. All those questions should be uh, addressed, but I don't think they can be addressed uh, before there is enough international pressure on M23 and its supporters in the region. That was Fred Bauma, a senior fellow at the NYU Center on International Cooperation. He spoke with VOA's Douglas Mpuga from Kinshasa. Meanwhile, more than 72 cubic meters of UNICEF's life-saving supplies for displaced people landed today in Goma on a humanitarian air bridge flight organized by the European Union, supported by France. The emergency material contains 50,000 sachets of oral rehydration salts, ORS, which will play a vital role in tackling diarrhea and cholera in 8,300 households. The flight also included large consignments of vitamin A supplements to strengthen the immune systems of 300,000 children, prevent malnutrition, and offset the effects of measles. 
According to the agency UN Women, women in Africa are half as likely to use the Internet than their counterparts in the rest of the world and 25% less likely to own mobile phones. Mavis, Mavis Ochera in Juwaso, in the Ashanti region of Ghana, has more on the story. The organization says while digital technology has the potential to raise incomes and improve the quality of life for countless people, it has mainly benefited those who can afford to access these tools. UN Women made this announcement at a gathering of more than 100 leaders in government, the private sector and civil society across Africa that convened virtually this week for International Women's Day. They came together to push for a better gender data to quantify and bridge the digital divide among Africans. Zebib Kavuma, the agency's regional direction for Eastern and Southern Africa, says many women and girls without access to digital technology at serious risks of being left behind. She says this aggregated data in information and technology is essential for governments to create policies for marginalized populations. She says gender data also helps in monitoring progress made by women and girls in accessing digital services and facilitate holding policymakers accountable for their success or failure in bridging the digital divide. When you lump together, um, it's very difficult because the way that technology and evolution affect women and men is not the same even within women themselves. A woman who is in the rural area, who is old, who is disabled, who cannot read or write, is not the same as a woman who has a full-time job at Microsoft and can run her own business. So we need to disaggregate all of that. Kavuma says to address the underrepresentation of women in fields such as computing, digital information and technology, more girls should be encouraged to pursue courses in science, technology, engineering and mathematics STEM to hold bridge the gender gap. She says some governments are partnering with the private sector to design programs to enhance the digital literacy of women and girls. How can they educate uh, women and girls in this space? They're coding programs. For example, in Kenya, they were introducing coding into the high school curriculum and starting even from primary school to engage boys and girls uh, into the space of technology and how to utilize gadgets. She says her organization is also undertaking a lot of advocacy works with civil society organizations to create awareness of the opportunities and potential for women in technical fields. They include programs such as the African Girls Can Code initiative implemented by her organization, the African Union, and the International Telecommunication Union. Effort empowers girls through digital and computer literacy and places them on the path of tech careers. There is also, of course, the need to push to have public infrastructure that connects rural and urban societies. We create platforms for girls to come together and empower each other and understand and share using technology, using the platform such as the internet, not only learn the language coding or programming language, but also to understand issues, how to empower yourself, how to articulate your issues, how do you sell your ideas. So all these sorts of skills where girls can also have access to learn. She calls on governments in Africa to streamline regulations and put in place mechanisms that provide for ethical and safe space for technology users, including legislation to crack down on cybercrime. Reporting for VOA, this is Mavis Autry in Drasso in the Ashanti region of Ghana.
The Men's Basketball Africa League ball tips off its third season tomorrow. The Voice of America is a broadcasting partner of ball. VOA will be broadcasting the ball games on radio in five languages, English, French, Bambara, Portuguese, and Kenya, Rwanda. To brief us more on the tournament, we have online the host of VOA's Sunny Side of Sports, the one and only Sunny Young. Welcome to African News Tonight, Sunny. Sporty greetings, Jehaeus. Always good to be back on African News Tonight. So, Sunny, I have like three questions for you. Uh, the first, talk to us about the teams in this season three of the ball, old and new. I like the way you describe that, Yeheus, old and new. In fact, if we look at this initial phase, the Sahara Conference in Dakar, Senegal, uh, it features three teams that have played in the Basketball Africa League before, and it features three teams making their debut in this uh, men's club competition. Uh, the teams making their debut in the league are uh, ABC Fighters from Ivory Coast. They play the opening game on Saturday against A.S. Duanis. That's the uh, hometown team in Senegal. And the two other teams making their debut in this conference are Quara Falcons from Nigeria and Stad Malian of Mali. Now, that Malian team, Yeheus, has a really tough opening game on Sunday They have to go up against the defending BAL champion, U.S. Monastir of Tunisia. Uh, the Tunisians kind of kept the North African streak alive. Uh, the first two seasons of this Basketball Africa League, uh, the cream of the crop ha have come from North Africa. Zamalek won the inaugural Basketball Africa League trophy, and Monastir won it last year in Kigali, Rwanda. So now the question becomes whether uh, perhaps a team from uh, West Africa or even East Africa can, can dethrone uh, the North Africans. Uh, another team that I'm really interested to watch, Yeheus, is City Oilers from uh, Uganda. They won't begin play until next month in Cairo. Uh, they're another debut team. And so we're gonna. It should be interesting to see how these old and new teams fare mm -hmm. in the Basketball Africa League. So you mentioned Duanes. Do you think the fans of Dakar will come out to support the season? And how will the fan fan support help the Senegalese side of AS Duanes? Yeah, yes. I I I believe you really can never underestimate uh, having home court advantage uh, at any basketball competition. So I, I think Duanes will feed off the crowd uh, in Dakar. One one problem, kind of a problem they had last year during this phase in Dakar, uh, was the scheduling. Uh, some of the games were taking place right at rush hour in in Dakar, and it was difficult for some of the fans to get to the arena. And I think I think the Basketball Africa League has made some adjustments. So I'm hoping we're going to see more fans at the Dakar Arena. And, yes, I think they can uh, kind of like in, in, in football or soccer, we talk about the 12th man on the pitch. Uh, well, maybe Duanis will have that sixth man on the basketball court. 
So we'll be looking forward to hearing your report starting tomorrow when everything tips off for the third season. Thank you, Sonny. Thank you, Yehaeus. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehaeus Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Joe Gill, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.